0: Welcome back to the 102nd episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including the fall of the neoliberal world economy and the rise of a new one, how mega corporations are taking over ski towns and completely dominating, as well as an article talking about weed, and how some people on the right are freaking out over it being legalized in different locales. And of course, we'll end today with our daily delight. A story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump into our daily debate. So, I have been trying to read a little bit more frequently. Haven't been doing the best job, but I've been trying. And I was really curious, I've read some Russian authors, German authors, of course at college you're exposed to a whole bunch of different authors. My question to you is, what society, what country is best at writing? Is it the English, is it the USA, the Germans, is it the Chinese, or are there other authors that I'm not necessarily exposed to? I know the Russians have a deep literature culture as well, so throw that down in the comments section. Tell me which one you think is the best, and if you would like to, tell me why. I'm curious. Maybe I can expand the reading list a little bit, maybe you can give a recommendation to some other people who may need some reading as well. All right, let's jump into our first story, which comes from Alternet, The Emerging New World Economy. Now, of course, a lot of people have used the term, oh, it's the new world order over the last few years. There's a new emerging economy, and it kind of sends a shiver down some people's spines. They step back and they say, whoa, 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 what do you mean? You're getting rid of my system that's allowed me to prosper, that's allowed me to have so many opportunities, that's allowed America to be on top, the hegemon of the world over the last 20 years. What do you mean, new world order? Hold on, stop. We can't be talking about that. I don't want things to change. I want it to stay how it is. And there's a lot of resistance that comes with these sort of terms. And, of course, I don't necessarily like the terms as they are. When I first read it, I did have a little bit of that spine shiver. But this author is actually trying to highlight how things are changing and how we can either go along with it or how we can push back. And the fact that it actually is a natural process, that this neoliberal globalization, the previous world order, this is actually part and parcel. We see that capitalism allows certain economies to rise. Then they start going to other countries where it's a little bit cheaper to produce some of their goods. And then those countries start to rise. And this is completely natural because at the end of the day, look at the UK, then America and China. The UK was the world empire for a long time, but they noticed at home, it was extremely hard to get good prices for labor because people were becoming more educated, their standards of living were a little bit higher, so they needed some more money to survive. So what did the empire start doing? Exporting some of its manufacturing to the colonies, which, you know were a little bit cheaper. But as they started losing colonial power, they started exporting to other countries like the U.S. And these economies emerged very industrialized, really cheap labor. And then when the U.S. rose to power and they started realizing, oh, wow, it's getting expensive. I understand what you were dealing with, Britain. I understand our people. They have a little bit of higher costs of living. They want some more wages. They're unionized now. They're pushing back. So where can the companies in the U.S. now go in order to produce their products in a cheap manner? Oh, well, look at China. China just opened up their borders. They're allowing some investment. They're allowing a little bit of capitalism. Let's go there and make them the next large producer with cheap labor. And you see how this process continues and continues and continues. So if you're an American right now, you kind of have to accept that. You kind of have to say, okay, yeah, we have seen this pattern before, and it's going to happen to China and India too. They're going to grow in power, and then they're going to start exporting their manufacturing to less fortunate countries or countries that are growing rapidly and have a lot of cheap labor. So this needs to be accepted is basically what the author is getting at. But Let me use his words to describe what's going on here. I think I gave a good summary, but he can go a little bit more in depth than I can. Quote, first, the neoliberal globalizing paradigm is now the old. Economic nationalism is now the new. It's another reversal of the previous position, driven by its celebrated profit motive. Capitalism is in its old centers, Western Europe, Northern America, and Japan, Invested increasingly elsewhere, where labor power was far cheaper. Markets were growing faster, ecological constraints were weak or absent, and the governments better facilitated rapid accumulation of capital. So, let's pause there. What they're saying is they're exporting to these other countries where they don't necessarily have as many industrial regulations. They don't necessarily care about the eco- the ecology of their country as much. And this is something we see as you rise up the tax bracket, as you're not so concerned with growing and establishing your power and your population is just trying to survive, they don't necessarily have time to worry about the bigger things. But in a Western nation like the U.S., you see a lot of young people worried about the climate. And this is because no longer are they starving or fighting to survive. They have a lot of time on their hands, so they're able to pick up... Things that they think are very important to not just the world, but them as well. They're able to pick up hobbies. They're able to pick up activism. So you can see that with this great power and accumulated wealth that comes from being the manufacturing hub, you start to become a little bit more conscious and you start to think a little bit more long term. Countries, rather than destroying their forests and polluting their air and hurting their population, start to say, well, okay, we have financial means now. We're not just trying to survive as a nation. We're not just trying to get on to the stage to be a world player. We want to survive. We want to last. So let's take on some of these policies that you know may seem a little bit restrictive, but they're going to help in the long term. Or at least that's the thought process behind it. Quote, these investments brought back "...big profits into the capitalist's old centers, whose stock markets boomed and thus their income and wealth inequalities widened, since the richest American owns the great bulk of securities. Even faster was the economic growth unleashed after the 1960s and what quickly became capitalism's new centers, China, India, and Brazil. The growth was further enhanced by the arrival of capital relocated from the old centers." Capitalism's dynamic had earlier moved its production centers from England to the European continent, then to North America and Japan. The same profit-driven dynamic took it to mainland Asia and beyond during the end of the 20th and the beginning of the 21st century, end quote. So, like I said, he's setting up here the shifting centers of production. And if I'm to make a... Guess here, it's probably going to move out of Asia into Africa next. We're seeing a lot of these countries going through reforms. They've had an, a lot of countries in Africa, not all of them, have had enough time to reestablish national identities. I mean, a lot of these African nations weren't actually formed until the 20th century. So they've been a little bit slow to actually stabilize, but as they're doing so, They're starting to have larger populations. And China has been making lots of inroads in Africa. And I think that's because they realize the same thing will happen. They're going to have to find a place to export their manufacturing processes. And Africa is going to have the next big boom. And maybe some other places in South America. And obviously, if you're listening, you're probably thinking, well, Alex, of, of course. That's obvious. If you know what's going on, you know about the growing power of the global south. But if I had to make a very quick prediction, it would be Africa is going to be coming next. So we've talked about the old world order, but what is happening, or what has allowed this old world order to really stay in power? And then we'll talk about what the future world order is. So the there's a few downsides to world globalization, and this is what's happened because we have adopted this neoliberal globalized world order. Quote, it, by the way they're talking about neoliberal globalization, downplayed or ignored the other sides of globalization. One, growing income and wealth inequalities inside most countries. Two, the shift of production from old to new centers of capitalism. And three, faster growth of output and markets in new centers than old centers. These changes shook the old center societies. Middle classes were in apartheid and shrank as good jobs moved increasingly to capitalism's new centers. The old center's employees' classes used their power and wealth to maintain their social position. Indeed, they got richer by harvesting the greater profits rolling in from the new centers." End quote. And you can see this very obviously. Think about call centers. If you live in America and you want to call a company because they are offering customer service, you have an issue, and it's a little bit later at night. Well, a lot of these call centers have been exported to different countries. And this is because, one, the time schedule is a little bit different, and Americans don't like to work work past 5 o'clock. So they don't want to do a two-shift system, so they just say, okay, we'll open a call center in India that can handle the rest of the day, and it's a little bit cheaper over there. Or they'll open a call center in a different country, something of this nature. And you can see the change of these jobs going to different areas because these companies, they need to cut costs where they can. And this you know it's great for the companies and it's great for the richer people is what the author's saying here but the middle class the people who weren't necessarily making the biggest bucks who didn't necessarily get a college degree but could work in a call center who would have taken those night shifts in order to get by now they they can't they're losing that income to a different country and it does shock the system a little bit it causes a crisis of well we hold on what do we do now a lot of these more menial and not to be degrading but these jobs that don't require specialization in any way they're being exported so what you saw in england was an increase of finance jobs in london or a lot of different service jobs you'll probably see the same thing here in the united states and you'll see a lot of people pushing for maybe more specialization trade schools we've seen a lot of that recently if you want to go to college they'll have more specialized degrees in it in computer science, things of this nature. So you start to see a shift in the old centers in order to adapt to the situation that they are now in. Or you may see more truck drivers. But if you notice what I said, all of those different categories, a lot of them can be replaced. Not necessarily the specialized tradesmen like plumbers. They can't necessarily be replaced yet. But truck drivers may be replaced by AI and self-driving systems here soon. A lot of computer coders could be replaced by AI systems here soon. So we have an even bigger shock because we're coming into the realization that our economy is shifting, that we are no longer a big manufacturer. We're losing a lot of jobs at the same time as a revolutionary technology like AI is coming around, which would take even more jobs. So... What is happening because of this? There's kind of a fall of the United States. The prestige has kind of fallen off a little bit. And what does that actually entail? The author goes into it here, so let's jump into a quote. Quote, the question is whether the U.S. has learned or ever even can learn the key lessons of britain's imperial decline or will it keep trying military means even more desperately and dangerously to hold on to the global hegemonic position that while it relentlessly declines after all the u.s wars in korea vietnam afghanistan and iraq were all lost china has now replaced the u.s as the major peacemaker in the middle east and the days of the u.s dollar as the supreme global currency are numbered U.S. supremacy in high tech industries has already been shared with China's high tech industries. Even major U.S. corporate CEOs, such as Apple's Tim Cook and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, want the profits of more trade and investment that flow between the U.S. and China. They look with dismay at Biden's administration's risingly politically driven hostilities directed at China. End quote. And this is what the author, this last line, is highlighting as a rise of nationalist economies. That these economies, as they become the old centers of power, and as they start to lose a lot of their prestige on the world stage, which the U.S. arguably has done, whether you want to disagree or not, there's been a few bumbles that we've made on the world stage, and obviously China's stepping up in major ways. So as this happens, you see a lot of protectionist policies. You see a lot of tariffs, trade wars, trying to insulate the U.S. from losing its power and discriminating against other countries' goods in order to make sure that the U.S. companies can maintain their foothold and not get priced out by other countries' companies. But this is very nationalist. This is not necessarily free trade. It puts a lot of limitations on companies who rely on these cheaper goods from other countries. And at the end of the day, cheaper goods helps everybody. Or at least that's how the theory goes. And with nationalism, though it protects the corporations and companies in the United States, it causes the American citizen to take on the penalties. It says, okay, now you're going to have to pay a little bit more for... This one product that used to be $50, now it's $55. It doesn't seem like that much. But if you buy it on a regular basis, if you need it, then it imposes a lot of extra costs on you. And also, it doesn't spur competition. That company may realize, okay, well, now we don't really have to compete with outside companies from other countries. So why do we have to lower our price? It's okay. We're here in this protected market inside the United States, so we can keep it at $55. We don't have to try to compete with the Chinese version that brings it down to $45. We don't have to try to innovate in order to make our process any more efficient. So you see these sort of policies coming from Biden and Trump. We can both acknowledge that both of them have had their problems with China and other nations and made sure that there's a lot of protectionist policies in place. But is it actually good for the people at the end of the day? And even though we basically established the neo-liberal world order after World War II and we kept it flowing because of our Navy presence all across the world, now we're starting to say, oh, well, it doesn't benefit us anymore. It doesn't benefit us as much as it used to, so now we're going to pull back from it, which I think is a little bit foolish, if I'm being honest. I think the protectionist policies... They sound nice on the surface, but if you look at India, their car market, their car industry is terrible because they have protected it so much from outside competition that their cars are not, they're, they're a little cheaper, but they're not great quality cars. So these sort of things are not going to help the USA in the long run, and we'll see if the next president continues down this road. And we may have to sacrifice a little bit of our prestige, and I would say If it's inevitable, which I'm not saying it is inevitable, but if it is inevitable that we are going to fall out of power and we are not going to be the hegemon any longer, we should try to do it gracefully. There's always a Thucydides trap. We always want to keep and hold on to our power so desperately. And then it causes a war and then there's a humiliating defeat or a victory and then another war later and a humiliating defeat There's always that situation. It's never that the world power goes peacefully. They have to be humiliated into it. Think of Britain with the Suez Canal crisis when they were trying to maintain control of it when Egypt took it over. A lot of these things are going to humiliate us if we try to hold on too tight. And if it is inevitable, which I'm not saying it is, again, but if it is inevitable, we need to step back with grace. And then... We won't be as embarrassed on the world stage. We can be the grandfather sitting at the table, you know, giving wisdom to different countries. We don't have to be bitter. We don't have to do anything crazy. And maybe we can keep a little bit of that respect before we ruin all of it. That's an opinion of mine, of course. And we may not fall from power. There may be another shift. There may be another war that we end up winning and we stay the world's hegemon for another 20 years. And then Brazil rises up and challenges us. I don't know. But I would prefer that we go out on graceful terms eventually when we do, because all empires fall. It is just the cyclical nature of human history. All right, let's jump to our second article. This one comes from Powder: How Corporate Greed is Killing Ski Towns. So there's a little bit of background that some people are going to need here. I am a skier. I was a ski instructor for about six years, so this f- topic is at least familiar to me, but I realize not everybody is in that exact same position. So, the background. Quote, large swaths of ski, the ski community are professional haters of anything corporate. It just comes with the territory. However, while not necessarily misguided, much of this vitriol is unfocused boiled down to oversimplified statements such as, Vail sucks, or Altera ruined my local hill. If you're always wondering the actual how and why of what ski resort conglomerates are doing to ski towns, look no further. End quote. And yeah, there is a kind of a corporate pushback. I would say, and this is probably not a great analogy, because, or a great comparison, because I don't know many surfers, uh, but the ski slopes, the skiers, they're kind of the, the surfers of the mountain. They have that same mentality, or at least this new generation has that same mentality, which is, don't mess with my hill. I want to come out here, have a good time, relax. I'm going to do my thing. You don't necessarily get in my way. I want to talk with Ronnie. I want to talk with Larissa down at the resort, and I just want to have a good time. And this, not necessarily hatred, but a disdain For the overly corporate growing size of some of these conglomerates that are taking over a lot of ski resorts across the United States and even in other countries, one of them is actually mentioned as Australia, there's a a disdain that boils underneath the surface. And they're kind of hoping that they don't have their local hill taken over. So there's been a shift. Now, let's talk about what Vale has actually done and how it's taken advantage of a changing ski economy. Quote I wasn't completely aware of Vale's vertical integration model, wherein the conglomerate purchases every point of sale in the ski town from rentals to restaurants to real estate. This way, they get a slice of every dollar spent when folks come and ski their resorts. And maybe this is a Bit more of a hot take is the part that Vale and Altera, the two primary resort conglomerates in the U.S., business models revolve around weathering climate change. End quote. So, what they mean by weathering climate change is obviously we're dealing with a changing climate. We know this. Great. How are they dealing with it? Well, some years the East Coast gets a little bit more snow, they have a higher amount of people coming into their resorts and spending money and sometimes the west coast normally the west coast and the midwest they get a lot more snow and they have a lot more people coming to their resorts so by having their business spread out across the entire country the profits from one region can offset the losses from another and this is especially true when you have ski slopes and ski resorts in other countries, like Australia. I wouldn't be surprised if they don't own at least a few small ones in Europe, even though those are probably part of a few conglomerates. But you offset these losses, and you get have a little bit more gain from some of these other locales. So you don't necessarily have to run all of them at the top of the top Amount of profit. You can take a little bit of losses from your East Coast resorts while your West Coast resorts are doing really, really well. So, this insulates them from bad seasons, which is a great business model. If you're a person listening, you're like, oh, yeah, this is great diversification. They obviously thought this through. They're not just sticking to one locale because, at the end of the day, skiers are still skiers, even if they're East Coast or West Coast skiers. The only thing that really changes is the ski conditions. And then since they own every single piece of the resort from rentals, and when they say rentals, they don't necessarily mean renting houses. Even though they do own a lot of condos and they rent them out through a subsidiary company, they're talking about ski rentals. So on the East Coast, you're probably going to need a little bit of a straighter ski, not necessarily as fat because you're dealing with more ice. When you go out West, you're going to deal with a little bit more of your powder skis. So all you have to do is change the inventory. But at the end of the day, you're basically running the same model. We have a rental service. We offer rentals to our customers. We have a day pass. We have a few different restaurants on the resort or just one restaurant at the bottom, so we own that. And then we own a few rental companies or real estate companies, so we rent out the houses. We've maybe put them on Airbnb. So you can see how they have built out their systems so that anything that goes on in the resort, for the most part, they get money. Now obviously there are independent house owners who are renting out parts of their house or their entire house. You obviously have local residents who work in some of these locations, but at the end of the day a lot of these workers they're either facing low wages because they're seasonal workers who just come in during the good winter season or the sparse summer season to work in these areas. Or they're low-paid locals who can't necessarily afford the cost of living and have been pushed out. And this is why these conglomerates are not amazing. Because they come into these towns that were thriving based on a ski resort being opened there. They were making money. There were new jobs, new restaurants, new shops, things of this nature. And they were able to thrive based on the fact that the ski resort was doing well. But now the ski resort is saying, well, we need to go beyond the slopes themselves. We need to actually control everything around us so we get a little bit of money from that. We can actually integrate some of the experiences for our customers so they can go to our restaurants in town and get a little bit of a bonus or a discount. They can come to our hotels and get a few points. Or maybe if they have an Epic Pass, they get a discount on some of the other services. So, of course, as a business, it makes sense. We want to have different revenue streams, be diversified, so we get money from the mom who doesn't even go skiing and just wants to relax and stay on the side of the slopes all day. But also, we want to make sure our customers have all the amenities that they need. But then it strips the local economy of all of their businesses, restaurants, services that they've created over generations, and now a bigger player comes in with more money and can basically cut down the prices until they can get rid of that competition and then raise them back up when they're gone. So you can see how these conglomerates are not necessarily killing, but they're having a very negative effect on a lot of ski towns across the United States. And that's why you do see this pushback from a lot of skiers who say, well, that mom-and-pop shop that I used to go to for my rentals or that mom-and-pop shop that I used to go to for groceries in town, They were able to offer a little bit of a a lower cost, and I really enjoyed seeing Betty and Diane or Susie and Rob. I loved seeing them, but now they have to move away because they can't even afford to run a company, but they can't even afford to live there half the time. So you can see how this is a problem. And if you want to watch a video, so this article actually talks about a video by, I believe, Wendover Productions, I watched that video to get a better insight as to what's going on here. And if you want to watch that video, I would suggest it. It gives a great breakdown. It explains a lot more aspects of the worker side of things than I went into. I went more into the local economy because that's something I feel comfortable talking about. And the worker side is something that you know I didn't necessarily have to deal with as a ski instructor. I was very fortunate that I was in a very small ski resort that's not taken over by a conglomerate. It's more volunteer your time where you can here and there kind of thing. Of course, you do get paid in certain situations, but they expect a lot of you to just volunteer, give back, just do whatever they want you to do because you're part of the community. And that's something beautiful about the ski resort I worked at. And I feel like that's a little bit lost in some of these larger corporations, but I've never actually worked at one of them, so I didn't necessarily want to talk about that side of it as much. All right, so we'll move on from that article. And we'll go to our last one. And it's a it's a pretty short article, so it'll be quick. It comes from the Daily Beast. Let's be blunt. Legal weed is driving right-wingers mad. And if you don't love this title, it has a few different plays. Obviously, let's be blunt, talking about blunts of weed. And it's driving right-wingers mad. This is an argument that right-wingers or conservatives have been making that weed can actually drive you mad. There's a There have been studies that show that it can cause different psychopathy, or if you have the predisposition to schizophrenia, you could have a mental break of some kind. The data does show this, and also there have been new reports that I've seen from some of the conservative commentators that I watch talking about how there's a psychological dependency, and actually it is, that weed is addictive now. Now, did I look into the research myself? No, because I, I don't necessarily want to believe it, but also I don't necessarily care as much because at the end of the day, I think that you should be able to smoke what you want. You should be able to put what you want into your body. Yes, that goes for other drugs as well. I don't think that they're good. I think they're terrible for you. I would not encourage that type of behavior, but I'm not going to come in and say the government has to outright ban these products, because we've seen over years upon years of the drug war, when things go underground, they have to make them cheaper, so they cut them with different products, they synthesize them, versus if it was on a legal basis, then you can ensure that your drugs are not tainted, they have to go through a verification process, things of this nature. Now, of course, those views could change, maybe, like a lot of conservatives say, once you have kids, you start to think about things a little bit differently. But I fall on the side of Kyle Kalinske for the most part on this one, which is, hey, let people put in their body what they want. So this Daily Beast article really starts to highlight some of the right-wingers who have been saying some things that they don't necessarily agree with. Quote, right-wingers are losing their minds over the fact that marijuana is legal in large parts of the country. For proof, look at no further than the opinion pages of Rupert Murdoch's own New York Post. On this week's Fever Dream, hosts Kelly Will and William Summer entertain themselves by reading off a list of some of the most absurd headlines published by the conservative outlet, including their personal favorite, Let's Be Blunt, Legal Weed is Turning New York Workers into Zombies, end quote. And this is where I even disagree With the idea that Kyle Kalinske talks about where they can just put whatever they want in their body whenever they want. Now, they should be able to put whatever they want in their body. I don't think that they should be high at work, personally. Just because that increases the likelihood that something goes wrong. If you're working a fryer at McDonald's, people are like, oh yeah, you you could be high, that's no big deal. What happens if you days off, you lose concentration, and you spill the oil on somebody, on yourself... So there obviously needs to be personal responsibility with some of these things. But that also falls into you need to be personally responsible enough to acknowledge that people can take whatever drug they want. That It is their personal responsibility. They're taking on the risk if they're doing it at work. I just don't think that they should put others or themselves at risk. Now, am I going to mandate it by law? No. But I think that you should have enough self-respect or at least enough respect for the people around you to not smoke while you're on the job, especially if you work a job that's even more dangerous than fast food or something of that nature. But I do find it funny that a lot of conservative commentators, the author seems to imply here that they just get mad that their workers at the Sweet Greens are a little bit high when they're giving them their food, which is hilarious. It's like, man, he's just giving you your food. Like, why why is it a big deal? He's just checking you out. But I could also understand their perspective that maybe they get a little bit frustrated when the guy's a little bit mentally slow and they're in a rush. So there's lots of different diverse opinions on this one. And at the end of the day, let people put in their body what they want. And if we make it legal and have an enforcement body that ensures the quality of certain things, I think that that's not necessarily a bad thing. But then again, there's also the aspect of it that... I don't necessarily think there should be fentanyl on the streets. I don't think we should be encouraging people to use these drugs. I just think they should be allowed to use them if they're going to. And if they're going to use them, they should be doing it in a safe way. But, you know, it's a very complicated issue. And if I read a little bit more on it, do- take a little bit of a deeper dive, maybe my opinions will change. But that's where I stand right now. And I think it's a, it's a pretty libertarian position on this one. All right. With all that said, let's jump into our daily delight. This one comes from Petapixel, photographer joined by adorable lion cub assistant. So wildlife photography can sometimes be a very lonely prospect. You're having to sit there or lie down for hours upon hours waiting for the perfect shot. But it doesn't have to be that way. Quote, in February, Jamal, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing his name, saw one of his posts go viral, but it wasn't a photo of an animal in the wild. Instead, it was a photo of himself next to an unusual companion he brought on a shoot, a lion club, cub, end quote. And, you know, this really is a perfect photo. And, the, you know, the cub is looking very relaxed, very chill. Quote, my nephew Fakal took the opportunity to take pictures and videos of us at this incredible moment, seeing our position and us gazing together in the same direction, the public loved the photo, end quote. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or the video that comes with this article, or you want to read any of the other articles, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find a link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, Podvine, and the Twitter handle at Your Daily Flip where you can come and get the link directly to the YouTube video on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.